Well, it is a privilege to be with you all this morning. Uh, I think this theme of this retreat on being entrusted with the gospel is very uh, fitting for what we're going to be talking about this morning because the issues we're going to address are really central to our the outliving of the gospel in our lives. And so um, I recognize that we're going to be talking about some heavy topics this morning. We're going to look at God's, not just God's design for sex, but his good design for sex. But we're also going to be talking about LGBTQ plus issues on your campus, which I know are becoming more and more prominent each and every year. But really, those reasons are not why I'm so excited to be speaking with you this morning. This morning I'm here fundamentally because I do want to talk about the gospel. I do want to talk about the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ who came into the world as a suffering servant for, to save desperate sinners like you and me. And maybe some of you are going to hear my messages this morning and you're going to be challenged. You're going to be challenged with what you really believe is true and right and even good about God's design for sex. Maybe some of you have been tragically experienced sexual abuse in your life, and you're going to wonder how we could possibly talk about sex in any way that is positive. Maybe some of you this morning are coming in and you're struggling with various types of sexual temptation and sexual sin either present struggles or past struggles. And maybe there's a a weight of shame, uh, guilt, maybe even despair that made it hard to even set foot into this room this morning if you knew what we were talking about. Maybe some of you are wrestling with same-sex attraction or you're having questions about your gender. Or maybe you have close friends, loved ones, family members who have these experiences and you're wondering whether Christianity in the Bible has anything to offer you or your loved ones. Whatever pain, whatever struggles you're bringing to this room this morning, I hope the message you walk away with is that Jesus wants to meet you right where you are. He wants to meet you with his grace, with his truth, with his mercy, with his power, and with his love. Wherever you are, I would encourage you to come to him with your heart and come to those who represent him uh, here in this ministry at Disciple Makers and ask for the Holy Spirit to take the word that we're going to look at this morning and illuminate that word. Because the Spirit is not only the author of Scripture, but he's also the one who interprets it. He interprets it for us as he dwells in our hearts. So let me pray for us. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we wrestle with these issues. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us in your word. You tell us everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, we need you this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to help us to see what is in your word and help us to understand it, not only as true, but also as good. Also as part of your loving purposes for creation and for your redeemed people. And so I do pray, Lord, you know the heart and the lives and the experiences of each individual here this morning. And I pray that you would apply your word to them in a very particular way, in the way that they need it, and that their eyes would not be focused on their struggles and even their sin, but focused on their Savior. 
And so help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in this first talk, we're gonna do a 30,000 foot kind of summary view of God's good design for sexuality. And there's so many things that I will not get to in both of these talks with only about 45 minutes. But my hope is that you're gonna walk away from this first talk not only knowing what the Bible says about God's design for sex, but also believing it, and then that belief leading to worship. And worship not of the creation or what he has created, but worship of the creator, uh, the designer of all good gifts, so that our hearts would not terminate on the gift itself, which sex is a gift, as we'll talk about, but that our, our worship would terminate ultimately on the giver of those gifts, who is himself the best gift, the greatest gift of all. So we need to start with a simple and yet perhaps unintuitive premise, and that is that no one is more pro-sex than God himself. That might seem obvious to our brains since he created sex, and yet perhaps many of our hearts don't resonate with that truth. When we think of sex, we probably don't think of God's delight. Immediately, we might instead think of things like shame or that God is anger, angry towards uh, the way sex has been distorted in our world. And you know, it makes sense because um, the enemy loves to take the best gifts that God creates and distort them. Uh, you know, Satan can't create anything evil out of nothing. All evil in the world is ultimately distortions and corruptions of originally good creations of God, and sex is good. Consider the fact that every single one of us are here alive today because of sex. There's no other way for us to create life. Yes, we could talk about IVF, we could talk about other scientific technologies that bypass the act of sex itself in order to create life, but organic or synthetic means that scientists use still are building off of God's original design. So it would make sense that the enemy would specifically target the one thing God has given us to create life and instead distort that good gift, not so that life is produced, but instead to bring forth death and destruction. But that destruction was never God's original intent. And as we'll look at later today, it's when we veer away from God's design, that's when destruction follows. The wider culture is going to tell you and probably has told you many times that the Bible's teaching on sex is repressive. Um, it's perhaps a necessary evil at best. But the truth is, is that the Bible is unashamedly positive about sex. The Bible affirms the goodness of the created physical order in general. You know, uh, the history of both Eastern and Western philosophy around the world is actually a denigrating of the physical. This physical is bad. These things are just skin suits that we gotta shed off so that we can go into some ethereal spiritual realm and that's where we'll be for all of eternity. But Christianity is really the only philosophy, the only uh, way of understanding the world that holds these things both together, the physical and the spiritual. God created the material world and declared it to be very good. 
Since humanity is made in God's image, God is the one who breathed life into us. And it's important to notice that God created the body first. In Genesis 3.8, God created Adam's body, and then he breathed the breath of life into him. And so we could say that we are ensouled bodies. We're going to have a physical existence for all of eternity, The culmination of the Christian story isn't a bodiless, floating, ethereal experience, but instead, this recreated cosmos, perfect beyond our ability to comprehend. So it's in the context of understanding that the Bible actually upholds and celebrates the physicality of our existence that we see again, what I said earlier, that the Bible is unashamedly positive about sex. At the beginning of Genesis, consider this, that the first commandment that God ever gave to humanity was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Or another way to say that is have sex and have lots of it. But the Bible doesn't treat sex only for its procreative function. It also unashamedly speaks of sex as something for humanity to take great delight in. Consider Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. It says this, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely doe, a graceful deer. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Further, the the book of Song of Solomon is a book devoted to the celebration of romantic and sensual love. And it specifically celebrates the goodness and pleasure that God gave to humanity in sexuality. Uh, Throughout this book, the couple revels in each other's bodies in very sexual ways. And it's not this embarrassed, quick, turn the lights out kind of approach to sexuality. It's as if this couple is standing stark naked before one another, an arm's length apart in bright sunlight, reveling in what they behold. Uh, Using metaphors throughout Song of Solomon for daily life, they describe these profound longings and pleasures that are found within sexual intimacy. Again, over and against the way the culture would distort how the Bible talks about sex, we see the opposite, that it is positive according to God's good design. Uh, We can also see uh, sex described in Christian marriage in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, 1 through 5. And I'll read that passage for you. It says this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should, not, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Just a few points. Uh, We could do a whole sermon on that passage, but just a few points on this passage here. Uh, First is that Paul elevates here the status of both male and female. Both of them have authority over each other's bodies. Both of them have a say in the marriage. Both of them have desires to be satisfied. And it is the spouse's obligation to satisfy those desires. 
The Bible is so positive about sex that it says you should not refrain from this except for very limited specific seasons of prayer and fasting. Of course, this passage does not leave room for sex on demand because the whole point, the perspective of this passage is not give me my rights, but how can I serve my spouse? It is deference to the other. The focus of this passage that Paul's encouraging is focusing on the needs and desires of your spouse. A husband is saying to his wife and a wife is saying to her husband, how can I bless you? And in that sense, sex is meant to be a reflection and character of the marriage relationship as a whole. Not a selfish endeavor of getting what you want, but constantly seeking to serve and build up your spouse. This is God's recipe for great sex. Two individuals radically focused on the other person, learning the joys of serving So let's go into more details here about God's design for sex. And I want to encourage you that I'm going to look at about six principles. So you can think on these in in these terms. And I'll I'll mention that as I go along. But we want to see how all of these things are meant not only for the flourishing of individuals, the flourishing for marriage, but also flourishing for families, cultures, and entire societies. So six principles. The first principle is this, that gender is foundational to sex and marriage. Gender is foundational to sex and marriage. When considering God's design for sex, the first crucial thing is we need to understand that gender is not something we can just kind of throw away as immaterial or doesn't matter, but this couldn't be further from the truth. And when we talk, when I say gender, it's important to note that what I mean by gender is not whatever we feel our gender is, but when I use that word, I'm referring to our God-given biological sex. Uh, When Jesus is uh, challenged about divorce in the Bible in Matthew 19, this is what Jesus says in response. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What what God therefore has joined together, let not man separate. What is Jesus saying here? The intention of marriage is directly linked here to the creation of male and female. Gender is foundational to God's intent for marriage, and it's what leads to this idea of one flesh. And we're going to hear this phrase, one flesh, repeated in many of the passages we're going to look at today. This was God's intent. So let's consider why the Bible teaches that gender is so foundational to marriage and to sex. And this leads to point number two, and that is procreation. Uh, The idea of procreation or creating life is radically downplayed in our culture today. Um, But while sex is not, while sex is more than just having babies, um, it's not less than that. We can't divorce procreation from sexual activity. I mentioned earlier in Genesis 1 that the call to have sex was for the express purpose of being fruitful and multiplying. This is part of God's design for human sexuality. One aspect of God's intent for human sexuality is that more image bearers, more people to glorify God would be created. But procreation only occurs through heterosexual union. 
And this is reflected in the basic structure of our bodies. Our bodies, male and female, are designed to fit together. It is also seen in the reality that both male and female are necessary to supply the essential components to creating life. This is the blueprint that God created. And because God is the author of life, he designed sexual activity to include the potential for creating life. This is the key here. Homosexual unions can never create life. A homosexual union will always be barren. This is the truth, that God designs his creation to reflect back to him his beauty and his own fruitfulness as one who is creating life. Biblical sexuality does not mean that couples should only care about procreation, nor does it diminish the beauty of sex between a married couple who is unable to conceive. But we should always have in mind that this physical act was intended by God, by design, to bring forth life. If any of you here in this room are married, maybe some of you are dealing with the pain of infertility, as I even am in my own marriage. And I don't want to minimize the reality of that pain or diminish the reality of the one flesh union that you have with your spouse. The absence of procreation doesn't reflect in any way or diminish the glorious union that God has created in bringing you together with your spouse. I realize that pain, the, the pain of infertility, it is part of the curse. It's not part of the original creation. It's part of living in a fallen world. It's a picture of the brokenness of this world. Similarly, there are couples who will marry very late in life, beyond childbearing years, and couples facing maybe physical difficulties or disabilities that make procreation impossible. Your union and sexual relationship are not diminished by the absence of offspring. But again, those are more the exceptions, that apart from these instances where sexuality is impacted by the fall or by just the transience of our current existence, it's important to acknowledge that God did intend for our sexuality to be fruitful and to multiply. Procreation is a fundamental component to why and how God created sex. So that's the second point. The third point, and this is related to all that we're already talking about, the third point is this idea of an opposite helper, or sorry, an opposite partner or helper. We're going to go through some passages here in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And what I want you to see as we go through this first passage is this interplay and this relationship of the pronouns that are used to refer to both God and to humanity. In both cases, there's this dance that happens back and forth between singular and plural pronouns. So listen to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It says, Then God said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What do we see here in this passage? Well, part of image bearing is a reflection of our triune or Trinitarian God. Trinitarian means God is three persons in one being. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Even in the opening chapters of the Bible, we don't get this doctrine kind of fleshed out, but we get a tiny glimpse of that idea here that will be much more fully developed in the New Testament. God existed for all of eternity in relationship with himself. And this is so important. This means that love predated creation. God was not lonely by himself, and that's why he created the universe. God has always been fully uh, satisfied in relationship with the three persons of the Trinity within the Godhead. And so, in, in a sense, we could say that creation is really the outpouring of this love relationship. God created the, the, the cosmos and humanity in particular so that there would be more for him to love. God wants to give us a glimpse of what it means to be made in his image as intimacy results in the creation of life. And one important aspect of our image bearing is that we are created for community. Uh, we, we can't, in a sense, fully uh, bring forth the glory of being image bearers of God in isolation. We live in relationship with one another as an echo of the relationship that God has in himself. And so in Genesis 1, we get this kind of like large macro view of creation. And then in Genesis 2, what happens is we zoom in, we zoom down to start to look at more specifics. And so uh, looking ahead to Genesis 2, I'm going to read verses 7 and 8, and then skipping ahead to 18 to 22. It said this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in, the, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the same passage that Jesus quoted in Matthew 19. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. After this uh, re re repeated refrain in Genesis chapter 1 that God looked at everything he was creating and it was all good, uh, this is the first time that God looks at creation and says that something is not good. That humanity was made and created to live in community. Uh, again, humanity is to called to reflect the triune Trinitarian nature of God who has always existed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Adam uh, cannot fully reflect that just as Adam. He needs more image bearers. 
And this is important to note that this, is a, this passage is a major argument for what our uh, pro-gay theologians uh, will look at a passage like this. There's a man uh, particularly named Matthew Vines who will place significant emphasis on this idea that if you prohibit a gay person from, from marriage, you're forcing them into a life of forced loneliness. And there are many things we could say to that, to that claim, but at least two things to say for now is, first of all, is Matthew Vines is assuming this principle that to be gay is a fixed sexual orientation for which developing desires for heterosexual marriage would be impossible. It's not even something he's willing to entertain. Um, God, or Vines would not uh, even consider that God in the future might have a wife for him if he would trust him and wait upon him because he's convinced that his same-sex attraction is immutable, uh, beyond change, beyond any ability for God to influence on any level. But secondarily, it's important to note as well that this passage of not being good for man to be alone does apply to marriage, but not only to marriage. Um, this idea of, of, of the need for community is expressed in multiple ways. Marriage is simply one of them. Consider the fact that in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35, I'm not gonna read it, but Paul encourages singleness for the sake of the kingdom uh, because in, in singleness, you can have an undivided devotion to the Lord. Is Paul saying that singles are forced to a life of loneliness? No, because even five chapters later in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes the church as a body, all of its members inextricably linked together. So in calling Christians to singleness, Paul does not anticipate mass loneliness in the church. Instead, he expects rich fellowship in the body. And it, it is interesting uh, that in this passage that we read in Genesis 2, God says it's not good for man to be alone, but he doesn't immediately create Eve. First, he calls Adam to name all of the animals. And I don't think this is by mistake, you know, and, and we don't know how long that could have taken, but that probably would have taken a long time to name all the animals. And I think the point here is that even before the fall, God has good purposes in calling us to wait, to wait upon him for his good timing, for something he knows we need, something he knows is good, and yet for reasons that we don't always understand, he has not chosen to provide immediately. Consider uh, that when Eve is finally created, the very first words that come out of Adam is poetry. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There was this clear sense of building anticipation over all this time that it took to name all the animals. God was, uh, God was calling Adam to wait patiently for this helper that would truly be fit for him. All those animals were not fit helpers, but Eve was finally this fit helper for Adam. So I don't know where the Lord has you waiting today. You might be waiting for something very good and maybe something that God does want to provide. But he has purposes for you in his waiting. He has purposes in training you and teaching you how to trust him. How to believe that his hand is always good. His timing is always good. His provision is always sufficient. 
So Adam is waiting on the Lord, and then verse 19 of chapter 2, it says, I will make a helper fit for him. And the more literal translation of that word helper is one like the opposite. It's the idea of this mirror image. Another way we could think about gender is these complementary parts, puzzle pieces that fit together. So this idea is that gender is expressed in complementary halves. And uh, it's also important to note that this word helper is not meant to be this subordinate idea that Eve is, is lesser than Adam. It's, it's this idea said of a partner, an equal partner. That's why actually this word for helper in, in the Old Testament is most frequently used to apply to God himself. Adam needed a helper to fulfill the task of multiplying and subduing the earth. So what do we, what do we learn from this detailed account of Adam and Eve? Uh, you may have heard that the Hebrew word Adam for Adam can also be uh, the word that's just used for all of humanity. And uh, so what, what we see here in, in Adam and Eve is really meant to help us understand humanity in general. And what we have here in the creation of Eve specifically is the single expression of humanity pulled apart to create the sexes. This is the only place in the Old Testament that word side or rib is referred to here for the human body. Uh, usually that word in the Old Testament can refer to the side of the ark, a Noah's ark, or the side of a mountain. Um, so instead of just saying they pulled one rib out, it would be a, a more literal, better translation would be to think of Adam's side splitting off to create Eve. And this is why uh, John Stott refers to marriage as a reunion. He says that you can have a sexual union with anything, but only in Christian heterosexual marriage does a reunion occur. The, the male and female pulled apart to create the sexes are fitted back together again. Think about this. They are united in the very act of creating life, imaging our triune God. Sex is a beautiful snapshot of the joy and delight that God has for all of eternity within himself. And again, this is not to say that sex is the ultimate human experience, but it is a snapshot. It is a snapshot of the glory that God has within himself that we reflect as his image bearers. And as we are joined in one flesh, more clearly imaging our creator as male and female, two images of God are brought together again. And so again, we see, we come back to that first principle, the gender here we see is foundational to understanding God's design. Point number four. Point number four is particularity. Uh, we also see in this passage that particularity is very important. Uh, that Adam says, this woman this particular woman is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God's design for human sexuality is one specific individual woman, or individual, this woman or this man. And I'm gonna be intentionally provocative here that God's created intent for humanity was not heterosexuality, or at least as we know it today. Why am I saying this? Well, when we consider heterosexuality today, we typically think of people being attracted to the entire subset of the opposite sex. 
But God's intention was not for you to have your desires and affections pulled in a thousand different directions. Instead, his intention really is in a sense that you would go through life with blinders on until that moment where God would bring to you the person that he would call you to, to unite with for the rest of your lives. It's as, it's as if you go in with blinders until finally, ah, this, this person is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is why Song of Solomon uh, has this repeated f- refrain in it where he says, do not awaken love until it pleases. Your love and longing is not meant by God to be for the entire subset of the opposite sex that you find desirable, but particularized for one specific individual. God designed your sexuality to be a gift for one person, the recipient of all of your love, all of your desires for the rest of your days. That was what God intended. Our sexuality is not supposed to be focused on the opposite gender, but one specific individual. So we could say instead, more than saying that God created us to be heterosexual, God created us, his intention for us was to be spousal sexual, uh, a spouse of the opposite sex. And this leads us to our next point, number five. You can't separate out sex and marriage without terrible consequences. The Bible talks about marriage as a man and a woman becoming one flesh. We've already looked at that before. Another word we could use for this is the word union. The man and woman are united together in the union of marriage. And it's interesting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul uses the same language of one flesh to not talk about marriage, but to talk about illicit sex with a prostitute. And, and, and so the act of sex as well, as well as marriage in the Bible, both of those institute or those ideas are referred to in the Bible as one flesh. Now, this does not mean that if you have sex with someone, you are automatically now married to them. But it does mean that these two ideas of sex and marriage are inseparably linked in God's design. Sex is distinguished but inseparable from marriage. And the reason for that is that if marriage is a covenant, a binding promise between two individuals, sex, we could say, is what ratifies that covenant, which is why we use the word consummation to talk about sex. What does the word consummate mean? Well, it means to make complete So in marriage, sex, especially the first time a married couple has sex, what it is doing is, in a symbolic way, it is saying that I am binding myself to you for the rest of our lives, as long as we live. But it's not just the first time that a married couple has sex, but every time after that, sex is a renewal, a renewal celebration of that covenant. It's a sign that's communicating the ongoing commitment and promises that you've made to your spouse. God designed sex within marriage both as a means of celebrating and strengthening the union, the one flesh union of your marriage. Many of you might know that in sex there is this special chemical that's released into our bodies which is called oxytocin. Uh, It's nicknamed the love hormone. 
And this special chemical is naturally produced in our bodies when we have sex with the spouse that we love and delight in. And it helps our brains develop a deeper trust, a deeper bonding, a deeper empathy, and positive communication with our spouse. Oxytocin is released in other types of relationships as well, like a mother nursing her infant child. But sex is one of the most potent and powerful forms of oxytocin release. This is one of the many reasons why sex outside of marriage is so damaging. When people engage in masturbation through fantasy or pornography, who are you binding with at that moment? You're not bonding with anyone, only a figment of your imagination or or a picture or a video on a screen. And sex with another person outside of marriage is binding yourself physically and emotionally with someone who is not yet your spouse. And this is why sex for many people clouds their judgment about who they should marry. Because uh, really it, it, it makes it very difficult for people when they're considering, should I marry this person, if you've already had this powerful experience of connection with them through sex. Uh, because this binding, bonding experience that God created sex to be wasn't meant to, to guide your decision on who you should marry. Instead, it was meant to celebrate and strengthen the decision that you've already comm- committed to. And lo and behold, social science is slowly catching up to what Christians have known all along. That God's design for sex and marriage is not meant to be repressive. It is for our flourishing. There's a recent study that just came out from Brigham Young University. And it showed that uh, couples who wait for sex until marriage are three times more likely to have higher stability in their relationship than couples who have sex before marriage. Sex and marriage are grounded in permanence. Uh, This permanence is what makes sex a safe thing. Sex outside of marriage is not permanent and it becomes something that you have to impress the other person. We talk about um, performance. Uh, Sex should not be a performance. It's not how well did I perform. Uh, That's sex outside of permanence. But sex within a permanent relationship is meant to be this safe expression of love, this safe revealing of yourself in the most intimate of ways. And that can only happen in the permanent promises that I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not leaving you, I am yours forever. Sex outside of the safety and permanence of the exclusive covenant of marriage actually flies in the face of the gospel itself. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ uniting himself to his church and saying, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. You're mine. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom who has united himself permanently to his bride, the church. As we mentioned earlier, we can't separate out sex from procreation. Again, this is another reason why sex outside of marriage can be so damaging because procreation, having babies, is the logical end of sex in God's design. It's what we expect to happen. But in a world where sex and marriage are divorced from each other, procreation is no longer seen as the joyful culmination of sex or the expected outcome. Instead, it becomes this unfortunate mishap, this mistake for for which many young single women feel like my life is ruined now that this has happened. And this is not to say that married couples do not have abortions either, 
but consider the millions of lives that have been lost because sex occurred outside of God's design for it. Consider as well the millions of children who are born into homes that don't have a mom or a dad and a dad together. The studies are endless that continue to show the benefits in child development when mother and father are both present, along with the detriments that show when one is absent. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. We could say a lot more about what happens when we go against God's design. But I want to end on a positive note here, and this is the last point in this talk. And this is that marriage is a signpost to the ultimate union. I started talking about that a little bit with Jesus and the church. As I mentioned, marriage and sex are inseparable but linked together. They're distinct but inseparable. So when we think about God's design for sex, we have to consider his purposes in marriage. And so um, there's a lot we won't get into this talk, but I want to I think about some theological implications. What does the Bible say about what marriage and sex are pointing us to in the spiritual realm? Again, we, we say that marriage is this exclusive relationship based on promises because it's supposed to point beyond itself to the exclusive relationship that Christ has with his church. Marriage is a reflection of God's relationship with his people actually started all the way back in the Old Testament. Uh, we, we see in the Old Testament that God is, is, is shown to be the bridegroom and Israel is his bride. Uh, God is portrayed as a faithful husband committed to a wandering wife. As this marriage metaphor emerges, what we see particularly in the prophets is actually a very negative picture of God's people continually committing adultery against their husband. And so what we see here is that marriage, the marriage metaphor is used here to depict the horrors of idolatry, of going after other gods, forsaking their God and turning to other lovers. Uh, they teach that the, the, the horrors of idolatry, the closest thing that we can understand, what this does to the heart of God is adultery. The prophets frequently use language like playing the whore or whoring after other gods. But fortunately in the Old Testament, it's not always negative. This metaphor is not only used to talk about Israel's sin, this me metaphor is also used in the prophets to talk about the glorious realities of God's love for his people. Consider Isaiah 62.5, it says this, For as a young man marries a woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Many of you might have had friends already who've gotten married, or you will soon. And maybe, especially for men, uh, there's only one place where you might see them publicly cry. Uh, publicly cry out of delight. And that, that is when he finally sees uh, his bride finally revealed walking down the aisle. This is a picture, a snapshot, a small glimpse into God's love, delight in you in his church. I wanna challenge you that one of the reasons why we even have a romantic drive is so that we would understand God's heart for us. That experience is so incredible, uh, so amazing because it points to something that is infinitely more glorious. And we see this all the more when we get to the New Testament. And here we have Jesus. He arrives on the scene and the bridegroom is finally here. 
In the Gospels, Jesus picks up the marriage metaphor, but he reorients himself as the bridegroom and his people as the bride. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is challenged by his disciples about why his disciples are not fasting. John's disciples are fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus replies by saying, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And if you know your Old Testaments well, uh, you'll know that there is a specific place where the patriarchs often found their brides to be. Uh, They often met their brides at a watering well. And then we come to John chapter four. And who does Jesus meet at a well? He doesn't meet this uh, spotless virgin bride who's kept herself ready for her husband. Instead, he meets a Samaritan woman who's already had five husbands. And the man she's living with currently is not her husband. And part of the reason John tells us this story is to show this amazing, redemptive picture of what marriage so often is in the Bible. Just as in the Old Testament, we have Hosea called to marry a wandering wife. So now Jesus meets this Samaritan woman with a sexually broken past. And what does he do? Does he reject her? Does he shun her away as you're not fit for me? No, just like Hosea pursued Gomer, Jesus pursues this Samaritan woman. Jesus as the bridegroom does not take for himself a spotless virgin to be his bride. Instead, he wills to unite to himself sinners like you and me by taking our guilt, by taking our shame, by taking our past, by taking uh, the consequences of our sin and bearing them on himself on the cross. So that we can see in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, listen to what Paul is saying here about this metaphor of who Jesus is as the bridegroom for his bride. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself without splendor, without present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus did that for me and for you. He did this for the Samaritan woman. And consider the response of the Samaritan woman. If you know the story, after Jesus meets with her, he goes and she tells everybody about this Jesus. He confronts her sin, but she goes away focus on her savior and she wants to tell others about it. Maybe some of you in this room this morning are hearing what I'm saying about marriage, you're hearing what I'm saying about sex, you're hearing about the, the, the devastation of sex outside of your marriage and thinking, I'm not a virgin. I've already had sex outside of marriage. What hope is there for me? Well, your hope is the same hope of the Samaritan woman, a hope that actually you can't contain because Jesus cleanses you. Jesus washes you. Jesus makes you spotless and so that you can go out telling of your Savior. And I want to encourage you, if you are not united to your Savior by faith, he invites you to come. He invites you to receive his washing, his cleansing. He will do this for you. 
Going on in Ephesians 5, we see this glorious declaration in verses 31 through 32, where Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We hear that again. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. This is another aspect of sex and marriage requiring an opposite partner. In this world, uh, husband and wife both are experiencing uh, being united to someone who is other. Uh, This reflects on the wonder of our union with Christ in the church. Jesus who is wholly other as the creator and us as the creature. And you see, same-sex marriage completely misses this point. Because it is not this mysterious other, but it is same with same. The profound mystery element of marriage is completely missed if it is not this mysterious other. And then we get to the end, the end of the story uh, in Revelation. And I'll read for you Revelation 19, 6 through 9. It says this, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage of Adam and Eve was the beginning of this world. The marriage of Christ and his church is the beginning of the world to come. The new heavens and the new earth begin with a wedding feast. This is the marriage arranged from our father from the foundations of the world that we would be wedded to his son. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty that marriage is a this worldly phenomenon. In the world to come, there will be no more human marriage. Why? Because we will all be united to Jesus perfectly for all of eternity in an existence that we can't yet comprehend. Marriage and sexuality in this life is like an illustration for little children of an infinitely greater and more glorious reality. Again, I want to say that in talking about all of these goodness of God's design for marriage and sex, I acknowledge the challenge of being single. Our culture exalts sexual activity and communicates that life without sex is a tragedy. The potential loneliness of a single life can be challenging and there are, can be unsatisfied desires that can be painful to, to wrestle with. But I, I, want, I want to focus on two important things as we close today. First of all, your faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of unsatisfied desires is a living sacrifice that honors him and will be celebrated for all of eternity. If you are single, you have an opportunity to exalt the satisfaction of Christ before a watching world in a way that married people cannot. Further, as I mentioned before, you're able to see that what you already have in Christ is what married people and what their marriage is pointing towards. And so I want to challenge you that on the last day, when we're all standing before Christ, seated at his feet, Nobody is going to lament the lack of sex that they had here on earth. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes this. He describes a young boy hearing about the pleasures of sex in marriage from his father. And uh, he talks about, and the boy asks him, well, dad, this is great, but when you and mom do this, do you get to eat chocolate? 
You see, chocolate is the highest form of pleasure that this young boy can conceive of. He can't imagine a pleasure that would not include chocolate. Lewis says that the boy could surmise that the absence of chocolate is the chief characteristic of sexuality. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. Lewis argues that this is the same is true when people think about no sex in heaven as some kind of bland fast for all of eternity. Lewis says, we know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Lamenting the absence of sex in heaven is as laughable as a young boy lamenting the absence of chocolate in the marriage bed. Sex is a good gift from God, but like all good gifts, it is to be received in such a way that enhances, not detracts from our love of the giver and enhances our anticipation of what all things are pointing towards. Sex and marriage are both good delights that are meant to whet our appetites for what is to come. Sex is like Niagara Falls. The first time I went to Niagara Falls, I was blown away by its magnificence, its power, its grandeur. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. But as the hours went by, as the day closed, I didn't want to stay there forever. I was, it just became water flowing off of a cliff. The dopamine effect of the falls had worn off and it was time to move on. In a similar way, sex is one of the highest forms of pleasure that humanity can experience. And in that moment, there's nowhere you'd rather be than in the arms of your spouse. And yet life is so much more than sex. It's a good gift, but it's not the be-all, end-all of our, experience, of our existence. But eternity with God and his people will never be like Niagara Falls or sex. What we will experience in the new heavens and new earth will never get old. Uh, there will never be a dopamine uh, finishing. It will never get boring. No, instead, I would argue that eternal life with Christ will only increase in joy and delight for all of eternity. How can I say this? Things will only get better in heaven, not get worse or not stay the same, only get better because God himself is infinite. He's, he's beyond comprehension. And even if we're with him for all of eternity, we will never exhaust the wonder of our God. He is limitless. We will still be limited. So consider for all of eternity, hiking a mountain, getting the top of the mountain that you have hiked for thousands of years, thinking this must be the top. This must be the end. There's nothing more after this. And when you get to the top, you see a hundred more mountains off in the distance. And in that, in that sense, sex does point us to heaven. Because in a good marriage, sexual activity is something that you grow in with your spouse over time. The wedding night is typically not the best sex of your marriage. No, you will go through seasons in your marriage. And, and some will be more challenging and some will be more delightful. But many spouses will testify to the reality that the best sex of their marriage is not the sex they're having in their 20s or their 30s. Instead, it's the sex they're having in their 50s. And believe it or not, I just met a man last week who testified at 80 years old that the best sex of his life was in his 70s. Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> Why can he say that though? We, we, we laugh about that. And it, it, is, it is, I've never heard that before. That's the first time. 
But I think there's something important here that he's, he's highlighting. We laugh about that in part because we think, well, 70 years old, the physical aspect of that is probably not what it's like in your 20s. But again, what is God's design for sex? God's purpose in sex really is not focusing on the physical so much, but on the intimate connection, the love that you are expressing and receiving. And you can love spouses, you can love your spouse in your 20s and 30s, but God's design for marriage is that you grow in that love. And that love increases. And that love becomes much less about what can you do for me? I'll love you if you love me. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. It becomes much more of an agape love. A love that is without limits. A love that is, that is not based upon what you receive from that person. But out of the overflow of your union with Christ. Your abiding love that you receive from him. That overflows into your marriage. Sex in marriage is not designed to be a sprint. It's a lifelong commitment of knowing, serving, loving, growing, and caring for one another. Sex is meant to be a celebration, a sign, and a renewal of those investments that you make in your marriage each and every day, hopefully for many, for decades. I'm gonna stop there. That's the first talk, and I'll ask Mark for any instructions here.